to the Wild Wisdom Podcast with Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm Dr. Patricia. This podcast is for people who want to transform their health, restore their hormones, and reconnect to their body's natural wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia. I'm a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and passionate advocate for your health. Here, we'll explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and cutting-edge science, distilling the essence of true health into practical steps you can take. Wild wisdom is instinctive knowledge in action. Thanks for making this part of your day. So you want to be healthy, but you don't want to give up your breads, your pastas, your rice, and your sugary treats. Well, how can you have your cake and eat it? I'm going to teach you nine tips so that you can make this happen. Welcome to the Wild Wisdom Show, hosted by a medical doctor with a different spin on on health. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Mills, and I'm a holistic MD, and one of my superpowers is to take complex science and break it down into super easy to understand information with actionable strategies that you can implement right away for immediate results. Today, we're going to be talking about how to improve your blood sugar response to the foods that you usually love to eat so that you can have better hormone balance. If you've been following me, then you know that when you eat foods that cause a a big spike of sugar in your blood, that can imbalance your hormones by imbalancing, first of all, your insulin hormone, which is your sugar hormone, and that can have negative effects on your estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, and testosterone, and this applies for men as well. So whatever you can do to improve your blood sugar response to the foods that you are eating and that you love to eat will result in better hormonal balance. If you are joining me live today from my free and private Facebook group for women, Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, that means that you can participate. And I look forward to hearing your comments and seeing your questions, Uh, seeing your comments and questions. So please feel free to put them in and also feel free to put in your name and where you're calling in from. All right, so let's get started. We're going to have nine tips for you to improve your blood sugar response to the foods that you love to eat like your potatoes and your pasta and your bread and your cookies and all of those things. All right, so uh, tip number one is to change the order you eat your foods and use some food combining tricks. So this is all very um, research evidence-based. And what's interesting is that the research shows that when you eat your vegetables, your proteins and your fats before you eat your starchy carbs, like your bread and your pasta, your blood sugar response is lower, which is what you want. You don't want your blood sugar to go too high, right? You want it to stay nice and low. You want it to go up. That means that the food is getting into you, which is good. But you don't want it to go up too high and too fast because that triggers like a too much insulin production, the sugar hormone. You want it to be nice and slow and gentle up and gentle down, stay in that Goldilocks zone of not too high, not too low. And so having your vegetables, protein, and fats first improves your blood sugar response by anywhere between 16 to 42%. So that's almost like a 50% decrease, almost, not all the time. And it ranges between that 16 to 42%. But for example, let's say you're having pasta and you love your pasta. It pays in hormone balancing to have a bowl of vegetables first 
or to have a salad first. And to have in that salad, to have some nice olive oil, for example, right? For that fat, okay? And the research was interesting because they actually had some food sequencing studies where they had a vegetable meal, uh, meat kind of protein fat meal, and then the carb meal. And the worst blood sugar response was when the carb was eaten first. So the rice uh, or pasta, for example, eaten first. And the best response was the vegetable followed by the meat, protein, fat, followed by the carbs. Okay. And that's interesting because the vegetable part, I, I understand for sure in Italy, they have the dish which is called the antipasti, the before pasta. And the antipasti or the antipasto, that is a dish made of vegetables. So it could be like baked vegetables or it could be um, marinated or pickled vegetables or whatever it is, but it would be the dish before the pasta and it was always a vegetable dish. So interestingly, maybe that's one of the reasons why on a Mediterranean diet, you can have some nice pasta and still maintain some good longevity and health with that. There is a lot of debate in the um, food world about having your meat before your carbs. Um, some people say that digesting your meat takes longer, whereas digesting your carbs takes less. And so if you put your carbs after your meal, it kind of sits in your stomach and it can ferment. The argument against that is that maybe it doesn't sit in your stomach long enough to ferment. In Ayurveda medicine, they do talk about sequencing your foods in terms of like having easier to digest foods first and more complex foods to digest like your meat last. So that's where it's an interesting conundrum. Do you have your meat before your pasta? But what we do know is that at the very least, having your vegetables before your pasta or rice or potatoes definitely improves your, improves your blood sugar response. One of the reasons for this is that um, the vegetables, the fibers break down and they coat the lining of your gut and it can slow down that absorption of sugar. And the same trick actually would work, for example, with nuts. So if you eat a handful of nuts before eating your apple, that is also makes a big difference versus just eating the apple. And then food combining. So for example, let's say you want to have an apple. That would be like a naked carbohydrate on its own. There's no added protein or fat. But when you add protein or fat to that meal, to that snack, you now don't have a naked carb. The carb has company and it has clothes on. Let's say it's been clothed with protein and fat. And that also helps the blood sugar response. So for example, when I go to have um, my morning porridge uh, or my morning toast, I will have some a handful of nuts before. On my toast, I'll have olive oil or a nut butter or avocado, okay? And so that's the protein and fat combination. And you might want to add an egg if you can tolerate it. I personally can't eat eggs. I have a food sensitivity. But if you have an egg or a bacon or a slice of ham or something like that, that would be the food combining tricks that you would use to improve your blood sugar response after eating that food that you love, like your toast. Like for me, it's sourdough bread all the way. I love it. Even things for oat porridge, buckwheat bread, all those things, it all benefits from this idea of food sequencing and food combining. So that's tip number one. 
Tip number two is to add vinegar before or to your meals. Now, this is interesting because a lot of research has been done on this, and the vinegar that has primarily been studied is um, a source of acetic acid. So acetic acid is vinegar. And one very popular one that's been studied is apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar, for some reason, caught the attention of a lot of researchers. And they've been doing things like um, taking people who are non-diabetic and type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, but it's mostly on type 2 diabetics. And what they do is they give um, one to two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar before a meal. And so they test the people with no vinegar before the meal and then with the vinegar before the meal. And the blood sugar response to the same meal is lower than the meal that was had without the vinegar. Now, that the reason for that, they are finding in the research that there may be two potential reasons for that. One is that it slows the rate at which the food gets um, dumped from the stomach into the where the sugar is absorbed, which is the small intestine. So you have your stomach going into your small intestine. That's where a lot of your food absorption happens. Eventually, what's left over goes into your large intestine. That's where a lot of the water absorption happens and where your fiber is broken down by your gut microbiome. And then they're left, and then all the toxins are dumped out of your body into the poop. And that what's left from that is what you poop out through the rectum. So the slower that the food goes from the stomach into the small intestine, rather than having a massive spike in your blood sugar, you have an, uh, you're more likely to have a nice slow and steady release. And what's interesting is that vinegar may also act as what's called an insulin mimetic. It might mimic insulin. So you get some, um, the blood sugar um, response gets lower because in, uh, vinegar kind of helps the body out by kind of acting a little bit like insulin. So your body doesn't have to make as much insulin. That is a potential reason. But the stomach slowing one is the delayed gastric emptying, as it's called in research that has been shown to be the case. Um, so you can, that could look like, you know, doing that one to two tablespoons of shots of vinegar before your meal. However, let me tell you, I've been working with clients for a while, a while now using these techniques. And what I've learned is that that's a lot of apple cider vinegar. A lot of people can't tolerate it all that much. Some people can only tolerate one teaspoon and something is better than nothing we have found. So find the dose that works for you and also avoid getting it on your teeth because it is a vinegar outside of the body. It does alkalinize the body once it's inside, but before it goes in, it, it does act like acid. And so you can start to erode your enamel. So you can have like a little straw okay, and drink that. And now I'm talking about, um, you know, they have done this research on diabetics and non-diabetics. These tips for blood sugar improvement, these apply to people who are not diabetic as well, because research has shown that the more blood sugar control that you have, like the more controlled your blood sugar levels are after eating a meal, the less likely you're going to have problems with things like developing diabetes, osteoporosis, cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's. So it really pays. That's the long-term benefits. The short-term benefits is that you don't get hormonal imbalances, which can mess with things like your menstruation um, at the extreme cause polycystic ovarian syndrome. It can impact your fertility. 
um, it can impact your um, transition into menopause and your experience in menopause. I've got a great question here from a Facebook user uh, saying, can we use lemon instead? Is the effect the same? So that's a really great question. And it's wonderful because it leads me into my second part of this point, which is while the research was primarily done on um, apple cider vinegar, it also works with other sources of vinegar, like um, pickle, like fermented foods have uh, acetic acid in it, lactic acid. Okay, So that works as well. Um, rice vinegar, uh, white wine vinegar, um, lemon can work too. The thing is, you only really know if it works for you if you measure your blood sugar response. And I've been doing this for a while now, and I actually have a continuous glucose monitor on right now. You can't see it, but it's just on the back of my arm. And I've tested it out for myself. And uh, lemon works. It's a little bit more gentle, but it does work. Um, another tip that you can do is you make it what's what I call a vinaigrette. So a vinaigrette is basically when you take oil, like olive oil, and you mix it with vinegar, like apple cider vinegar or white wine vinegar. And you use a three quarters oil, one quarter vinegar, and you can add things like um, a tablespoon or three tablespoons of, um, like, let's say, um, the yellow mustard. And a really good quality yellow mustard gets its color from turmeric and has vinegar in it. So it's another kind of source of vinegar and adds a bit of favorite flavor complexity. And then you add your salt and uh, pepper to taste. You shake it all up and then you add that to your vegetables. You can add that to your rice. You can add that to your salad. You can add that to your potatoes, to your vegetables. You can add herbs to it. So like the very basic part of it is the oil and the vinegar. And you can use lemon as your vinegar source because it does have some acid in it for sure. So um, I've started pulling away of using apple cider vinegar before my meals and doing more of the vinaigrette. If I remember, I will do a bit of apple cider vinegar. I tend to forget that. However, with the vinaigrette, once you start using it, you notice it makes everything taste so much better that you almost don't want to eat a meal without it. Um, of course, unless you're having porridge or something, but for like your lunch or your dinner, it really makes a difference in terms of flavor. And that's another trick that the Mediterranean diet has is they do use a lot of um, salad dressings with vinegar in it. And that does help. The research does show that that improves your blood sugar balance for sure. So that's a really great tip. So tip number three is um, cook your rice and potatoes. Okay, so cook your starchy carbs like your rice and potatoes. And then let them cool in the fridge before eating them or reheating them to eat. Now, what is really weird about this tip is that there's a ton of research on this that shows that when you take rice and potatoes and you measure the kind of carbohydrates in them, and there's different kinds of carbohydrates, not all carbs are created equal. One kind is called a um, digestible carb. Let's call it digestible carb, okay? Your body can absorb it, like can absorb it in, in that small intestine that I mentioned. And that's where you start to see the blood sugar level go up. And you want to have those healthy carbohydrates from your rices and potato, but not too much that causes your blood sugar to spike too high. There's another kind of carbohydrate called a resistant starch. 
So while it's under the family of carbohydrates, molecularly, it's different. It's a different molecular structure. And these starches are not easily broken down in the small intestine. So they are not well absorbed in the small intestine. They act more like fiber, which goes past the small intestine into the large intestine. This resistant starch is eaten by your gut microbiome and the gut microbiome makes fatty acids that are very healthy for the body called ketones. And that's what gets absorbed into your body at that level of the large intestine. And the ketones do not spike your blood sugar and do not cause your insulin to go up. So it's very desirable to have a certain amount of resistant starch. So you want to have a little bit of your digestible starch and some resistant starch. When you cook your rice and your potatoes the first um, the first time, like you cook it, and if you were to measure your dige your digestible starch and your resistant starch, you would have more digestible starch and less resistant starch. But there's this really cool thing that happens when you then cool that cooked food, and what happens is the molecular structure of that rice and potato change, and you start to get less digestible starch and more resistant starch. And that process is called retrograde starch formation. So it's, you get more retrograde starch, more resistant starch that was formed from the digestible starch. And the cool thing is that once that happens, you don't lose it. So when you go to reheat that, it still maintains its higher amounts of resistant starch. So for example, if you're eating sushi and that, that sushi rice has been cooled down, uh, typically in the research, they do put it in a fridge so that it cools down like to fridge temperatures, not so much to room temperatures, but even just cooling down to room temperature and then eating it at that temperature or reheating it if you want works. So what I do sometimes if I remember is I'll make my rice the night before and I'll, I'll put it in the fridge and reheat it for dinner the next day. Same thing with potatoes and sweet potatoes, the same thing. So a really, really cool tip. Um, to improve your blood sugar response to those foods that you love to eat. Um, I'll see if there's any comments here. I see the Facebook user is saying, thank you, I'll try these options too. Wonderful, I'm glad you found it helpful. That's lovely. Okay, so the set, the third, um, sorry, the, the fourth tip, so that was three tips. The fourth tip is change the times you eat and don't skip breakfast. Now, this one is kind of a big one because a lot of um, the talk in the health space is to intermittent fast or do time restricted eating so that you have um, so that while you're not eating, your body is busy cleaning up, you know, cleaning up the junk. Um, you're more likely to be losing weight when you're not eating than when you are eating. So you're kind of like trying to maximize, maximize the weight loss and the um, body cleanup capacity by having a narrow, more narrow window between the time you start eating and the time you stop eating. So we'll call that your eating window. But a lot of the advice is to skip your breakfast and break your fast at lunch with your lunch. Now, the interesting thing is that the research is showing now that when you skip a meal, it's actually better to skip your dinner or to bring your dinner earlier in the day than it is to skip your breakfast. What happens is that when you skip your breakfast, while you are burning more energy and losing more fat and cleaning up your body, you're creating some hormonal stress. The body gets into a more of a stress response. And the research shows 
that your blood sugar response to your lunch and your dinner that day will be worse if you skip your breakfast versus if you have your breakfast, you have your lunch, and you have your, if you're going to have your dinner, you have your dinner earlier, let's say before, you know, you finish eating before six o'clock, ideally not later than seven for sure. Not only do you get the benefits of um, still having a more narrow eating window. So, um, you know, you don't eat before eight o'clock, right? But uh, don't eat any later than 10. So still have your breakfast in that eight to 10 o'clock window. And then have your lunch or have like a smaller lunch if you want, but have your lunch and have your dinner, but have your dinner earlier. What that happens is you still benefit from having a narrow eating window. So you have that body cleanup time and that body fat burning time. But because you had your breakfast and you never got into that stress response in the morning, research shows that your blood sugar response to that day's um, uh, lunch and dinner is better and actually the next day as well. Okay, so it's a very interesting phenomenon. And so I used to um, do intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating by, by, not, by skipping my breakfast and having my eating between 12 and 8. And now um, I actually have shifted that. So I have breakfast and I try not to eat before 8 a.m. so that I still have a more narrow eating window. And I try to finish my dinners by 6 or 7 o'clock at the latest. And if I really want to get into that eight-hour eating window that a lot of people like to talk about, I'll start eating breakfast at 10 and I'll finish eating dinner at six if I want to just do a bit more cleansing, a bit more weight loss. So the timing really matters, actually, which is fascinating, particularly for women. We're very sensitive to that cortisol effect, the stress hormone. We are more sensitive to stress hormone than men. So the advice for men when it comes to fasting and intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating should be different than for women. If you're thinking protecting your hormone balance, then you want to have your breakfast and eat your dinner earlier rather than skip your breakfast and have your dinner later. That really, really, really matters. Let me know if you have any questions about that. And so now we're going to move on to tip number five, which is drink your coffee on a full stomach. This is interesting because if you don't drink coffee, then don't worry about this tip. But if you do drink coffee like me, I really do love my coffee, but I did find that I was having problems with hormonal balance and gut health drinking my coffee. So what I did was um, I was measuring my blood sugar response to my coffee. And I noticed that when I had my coffee on an empty stomach, my blood sugar levels went up, even though I hadn't eaten anything. And I went into the research and saw that that can be because Coffee on an empty stomach creates a bit of a stress on the body. It's like too much of a good thing all at once. Again, like naked coffee, just like naked carbs, I guess you could think of it. And that has an effect on the liver and it causes the liver to dump sugar into the blood. It's bizarre, but it happens. So you see your blood sugar go up. Now, this doesn't happen to everybody, but it tends to happen to people who are having problems with their stress response, which a lot of us are in terms of just life is generally stressful. So you want to decrease your stress in every way that you can. And one way to do that is actually to have your coffee on a full stomach and the, the food softens the blow. So the absorption, it doesn't hit you as hard as fast. Again, the absorption of all the healthy nutrients in coffee, like caffeic acid, you know, very, very helpful nutrients. Um, are buffered so it doesn't um, you know cause everything to happen too fast all at once 
And it's more, it's more likely to not uh, irritate the lining of your gut to have that coffee on an empty stomach. And I grew up in Brazil and I've been to Europe, Europe various times. And I noticed that I have I never saw someone there drink coffee on a, on an empty stomach. It's always after breakfast or after lunch. I mean, and some people would even have it after dinner. It was always on a full stomach. So for hormone balance, sugar and cortisol, so the insulin, sugar hormone, and cortisol stress hormone, have your coffee on a full stomach. So what we have here is the other tip, the next tip that we have, which is tip number six, is to go after you eat your meal, move your body. So, and so what that means is activate your muscles. So ideally you go for a walk. Uh, if you can't go for a walk, do some squats. So you activate your thigh muscles. And if you have to then sit down um, after that for a period of time, like at your desk, like I am right now, do what's, ca what's called heel raises. So your feet are on the ground, flat on the ground, and you lift your heel off the ground, keeping your toes on the ground. And to do that, you have to contract your calf muscles. And so when, when your heels are at the top of that movement, contract your calf muscles and then let them come down. And you do them and they're called heel raises or a fancy word for them are soleus push-ups, which is the muscle, the calf muscle, the main one is called the soleus. One of them is called the soleus. And it, the research shows that activation of the soleus muscle um, causes the um, sugar in the blood to be absorbed better by the muscles. So it's like the muscles just suck up that sugar. So walking activates the muscles. And when the muscles are active, they need more energy. So they kind of open up their doors to suck up the sugar and use that sugar for energy. And that sugar is less likely to hang around in the blood and cause that hormonal imbalance with the insulin hormone. It's also less likely to um, hang out around in high levels in the blood and damage the body because high levels of sugar also have that effect of directly damaging your tissues. So it's really a win-win situation. So going for a walk after your meal or doing some squats. And then the, the part about the sitting down and doing um, heel push-ups, that was actually something studied in research, which I found really fascinating. Now in that research, they did have the people doing it for four hours and their blood sugar response was like tremendously better. So you're not going to sit there and do it for four hours. I mean, if you do, I'm very impressed. But I think the point is that something is better than nothing. So um, I have at times had to go straight into a meeting where I had to sit down and I discreetly am just lifting my heels up off the ground, keeping my toes on the ground, doing these like heel push-ups. And um, for sure, it works. Like it actually does. It is better than nothing for sure. So these tips all really, really work, and they have been proven by research. Um, now, tip number seven onwards, we're getting into more longer-term benefits. Like what we just covered are all things that if you do immediately will help your blood sugar response immediately. Now we're getting to the tips where if you do this over time, you will see the effects. And one of them is to build muscle. So again, if it, your muscle is one of the major consumers of sugar for energy, and so the stronger you are and the larger your muscles, the more sugar you're going to absorb um, for every meal that you have, it's going to be used to burn energy versus be turned into fat or be available to imbalance your hormones. So um, not to say to become a bodybuilder, because that can be unhealthy sometimes if done the wrong way, but rather 
Um, for me, for example, I, I lift weights twice a week. I do upper body and then I do lower body. And then I'll do like one day, I'll do like a full body, more body weight routine rather than weightlifting. And in between, I do my yoga, gentle yoga, full body stretching, Pilates, Qigong. Um, if I am menstruating or heading into menstruation, I notice my energy is dipping low. I do not do weightlifting. I switch more into the more gentle, um, you know, restful, rejuvenating practices. However, when I'm ovulating and getting into my full energy, um, I do these exercises with weightlifting. If you're menopausal, uh, then that's great. You don't have your limitations, but pay attention to your energy levels because you can still fluctuate with your hormones. Um, and so you want to pay attention to that energy level. However, when you have good energy, um, you want to introduce some weightlifting to get that better muscle tone and strength and volume. Uh, it has many benefits. And one of them is for your blood sugar balance. So Facebook user saying, very interesting tip for when we are working, doing it as you speak. Wonderful. That's a, the soleus push-up, the heel raise. That's really great, right? It's just little things that you can start using right away for immediate results. And I love that you're incorporating that right away. That's so great. Another uh, Facebook user is asking, what is the minimum of exercise after meals? Okay, so it, this is a very personalized thing. Like some people, when they have diabetes, type 2 diabetes, they may need to do more things like walk for longer after a meal to see the effect that they want. And as their insulin resistance improves, type 2 diabetes is reversible. The research is very clear on that. Um, you do, however, have to work harder at it once you have type 2 diabetes to reverse it than you do to prevent it. So if you're in really good health and you're eating a very balanced meal that doesn't have a lot of what I call fast carbs that quickly get into the body. So for example, you're not eating like a cookie or a pastry or something like that. You're eating like a, a, a white basmati rice with vegetables and your meats or your protein products, your oils, right? Um, your blood sugar response will naturally be lower just because you've done a healthy meal. So your your need to go for a long walk is is less. Like you may not need to go for a very long walk. Maybe five minutes is enough. 10 minutes is enough. Around the block is enough. Around the house while you're like tidying up, maybe choose to tidy up and clean up the house after your meal. Maybe after your meal, if you're at work, um, if you know you need to go and visit people and talk to them, do that after you eat. Don't go eat, sit down straight away. So the answer is there is no specific amount. It really depends on where your health is at right now and what did you eat for that meal. If you had a massive meal, like for dinner, like a beautiful um, cake to finish it off, and you've been, you ate out, maybe instead of catching the taxi home right away, you either walk home, it could be for as long as an hour, a nice walk home with the person that you're with or on your own listening to some music, or maybe you walk home partway and then you catch a taxi from there right? Something like that. Or maybe you purposely park farther from the restaurant than at the restaurant, knowing that you're going to get a chance to walk to your car after your meal. So I would say probably one minute of walking won't do the difference, but you know, if five minutes or more, it will be helpful. And then add it on more depending on the meal that you had. Uh, another question from Melanie. Hi, Melanie. It's so nice to see you. It's been a while. Thank you for joining today. Melanie is asking, when you do weight training, do you do it at a gym or a YouTube video, debating on a gym membership, but wondering if it's necessary? It's such a good question. 
Personally, I moved to a small town. It's hard to access a gym. I use an online program called fitnessblender.com, F-I-T-N-E-S-S-B-L-E-N-D-E-R.com. And they have some really great free workouts. If you go to their workout tab and then you put on and then you click the filters, you can actually filter for the time that you want, um, the exercise intensity that you want. Um, do you want upper body, lower body, core, or all? And do you want it with weights? And I bought myself one of those stackable weight systems, you know, from Canadian Tire. I think it's $100. And so there's two weights, but within that, you can change it from anywhere from 50 pounds to six, uh, give or take. And so I do that at home, which I really, really like. So I hope you found that helpful. And uh, hugs and kisses to you too, Melanie. <laughs> all right. So that's a, that's a tip for, um, that's tip number seven. Now we're going to go to um, tip number eight. And again, this is a longer term strategy. And that's to use the power of Mother Nature, which for some reason, I don't know, again, how did these researchers do it? Kudos to them. They found out that cinnamon helps reduce blood sugar response. Now, if you are diabetic, and you want to have that effect, you're going to have to do medicinal doses of, of cinnamon. And the research has mostly been done on Ceylon cinnamon, D-E-Y-L-O-N. Ceylon cinnamon is better for your body than regular cinnamon. I'm forgetting right now why that is, but it has something to do with a specific molecule that is less present in Ceylon cinnamon than in regular cinnamon that if you overdose that molecule, it can be harmful for your health. And I forget the name of that molecule. So Ceylon cinnamon, when you start looking for it, you're going to start to notice it and be able to buy it. It's just you probably never noticed that there were different kinds before. And so if you are um, if you are diabetic, then you're looking at more like, you know, taking up more of like a, a cinnamon supplement. But if you are someone like me and you're looking for um, improving your hormonal response or you're pre-diabetic or gestational diabetes, you want better hormone balance, then what you want to do is you want to add Ceylon cinnamon to your meal. So that could look like sprinkling Ceylon cinnamon to on top of your apples, on your porridge, adding it as one of the spices in your curries, in your soups. I put a stick in, a Ceylon cinnamon stick into my bone broths and vegetable broths. So it leaches everything out into the water. And over time, that can improve your blood sugar response by improving your insulin sensitivity. Again, lots of research on that. And lastly, our very last tip, tip number nine. So if you have any questions, please feel free to put them in so I can get them answered for you by the end of the show is supplements. So let's say that you've done everything you can. You're, you know, you're cleaning up your diet so that you don't have as many blood sugar raising foods. Um, you're trying all these tips, you're doing your time-restricted eating uh, while not skipping your breakfast, and you're still finding that your blood sugar response isn't good. How would you know that your blood sugar response isn't good? You might be monitoring your blood sugar using a finger prick glucometer, which is a classic way, or the continuous glucose monitor, which I have on right now on the back of my arm. Um, I, I would recommend doing it at least once in your life, even if you're not diabetic, to get a real-time view of how the foods you're eating are impacting your, um, like your blood sugar response. And let's say you've done all these things and it's just taking a while for your blood sugar response to improve. There are supplements, again, proven by research that have, have shown to kind of 
kickstart or catalyze or like um, accelerate your body's capacity to recover from having had too much sugar um, too high too frequently in the past. And two top supplements that have been studied are berberine and myo-inositol. And berberine, uh, again, it's like all been very studied in diabetics, very efficacious for improving blood sugar control, inositol as well. And also inositol has been studied in polycystic ovarian syndrome with really, really good effects. Now, because I do have my continuous glucose monitor on right now, I'm going to show you um, what my value is right now. And I know that this um, monitor is... So I'm scanning the, there you go, it's scanned. And right now my blood sugar level is 5.3 millimoles per liter, which is a Canadian measurement. I checked my blood sugar response against a finger prick and I um, uh, glucometer and realized that this continuous glucose monitor was measuring my blood sugar too high by about one point. So the actual reading is 4.3. The continuous glucose monitor, while it's very handy, like I just showed you, I just scanned it and I got the result versus having to prick my finger, get the blood and measure it. It's not as accurate as the glucometer. So it is important that if you're using the CGM, you are using it to notice your overall trends. And you can see here, um, I had breakfast. Okay, So I woke up and my blood sugar went up a little bit because of that awakening cortisol stress response, which is normal. Then I had my, my um, breakfast and my blood sugar went up and not too high. See, I've got a range here of green that I, I put there for myself to know that I'm staying within my range. And you can see here, unfortunately, it didn't measure during this time. I'm not sure why, but I have been staying within my range with all of these tips and with eating a healthy, like healthy balanced meals. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, and this is the peace of mind that doing this can afford you is that I am not messing with my hormones with the foods that I'm eating, and I'm not putting myself at increased risk for getting things like uh, diabetes, osteoporosis, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia in the future, because all of those conditions have been linked to problems with insulin resistance, which is what can develop over time if you have these frequent daily spikes of um, sugar in your blood. So all of these tips are really meant to keep you looking and feeling and being your best for life. So everything that you can do to incorporate these into your life, in addition to everything else that I teach you, um, will just render in the long term so well. So I'm just looking here to see if there's any additional um, comments. Doesn't look like we have any additional comments, which is wonderful. Um, hopefully I've answered them, but please feel free to put them in if you need to. And I look forward to catching you on the next episode of the Wild Wisdom Show next week. We're going to be diving into the elimination diet, which in addition to my um, blood sugar monitoring and um, leveling out the response was one of the key, key strategies that I had to undertake in order to um, heal my gut and balance my hormones and get my whole body health back. Um, so I hope that this was extremely helpful. And I have a Facebook user saying, thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. And if you haven't yet um, subscribed or um, uh, you know, shared this, please do so. It's so important to share this information with everybody you can so that we can be surrounded by people in our lives 
who are healthy and feeling amazing and looking great and being their best. Um, we have here another last question. What is the range for blood sugar monitoring? Um, this question is a little bit more in-depth because it depends. If you're diabetic, the range is different than if you're not. So it's like, the, what range do you need to be in in order to prevent future complications? The range that functional medicine doctors use is uh, 4 to 7.8 millimoles per liter in Canadian values. And I want to make sure I get this right for the U.S. values. I don't often work with it, but I think it lies between 70 to 140 nanograms per deciliter, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I really hope I got that wrong. I'm right. I'm pretty sure I did. And what that is, is that you want to wake up in the morning and not have your blood sugar be too high. So in Canadian values, you want your blood sugar to be between um, you know, like a four and a five when you're awakening. And for the US, it's between a 70 and a 90. And then when you eat your meals, you don't want your highest spike to be above a 7.8 for Canadian values and uh, 140 for, you, for US values. That's different from what an endocrinologist would tell a person with diabetes. This is for health promotion. And a diabetic would eventually want to get back into that range as they reverse their diabetes. That's what they're aiming for, okay? So I hope you found this useful and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. If you like this podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe and please feel free to leave any comments and look below for the contact information if you want to connect with me directly. Thank you and I hope you have a wonderful day, evening or night. Hi everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for a professional care doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help in your journey, it is important that you seek out a qualified health practitioner. If you would like to work with Dr. Patricia for her expert health transformation guidance, please email her at info at drpatriciamills.com to book a discovery call. You can also find Dr. Patricia on Instagram at Dr. Patricia Mills and Facebook at Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills MD. For access to all of Dr. Patricia's educational videos and more amazing perks, consider becoming a Patreon member. Links are in the description of this episode. It is important to have an expert in your corner that can help you make the changes you crave, especially when it comes to your health. Thank you.